All right, we are in Galatians chapter 4. We've been working our way through Galatians. We're now in chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Uh, And I've used this illustration before, and I'm going to use it again because it helps me so much. But as I think about Galatians and working our way through it, and it keeps saying the same thing, Paul keeps saying the same thing over and over again, I just want us to have this this in our mind. When we were in school, when I was back when I was in school, um, girls and guys would pass notes to each other. And it was like, it was really exciting to get a note. It was like the equivalent to like a text message now. Uh, and you would, you would pass these notes and you would rush to class and you would hide the note in your textbook and you would act like you were studying, but you were actually studying the note that this girl just wrote you. And this one girl in particular, um, she would, I would get really pumped when she wrote me a note. It was very exciting, and she's here today, and we have kids together, so it's all good. Uh, but I, it really worked out, and uh, I know I've used this before, but this really helps me. In Linnea and I's letters back and forth to each other, um, it always carried this, my letters to her at least, always carried this same theme. And the theme was, I like you a lot, and like, we should probably go out. Like, let's do that. And this happened way before she really even liked me. But I just kept saying that, and I kept saying that, and I kept saying that. And I said some other really dumb stuff too. Like, oh, I hate math class, or I really need to clean my room, or I like roller coasters, or whatever you talk about when you're in 7th and 8th grade. But I always was getting back to, hey, I really like you. We sh- if you ever feel the same, let's maybe do something about that. And eventually, uh, we got married. So we did something about that. But this is Paul. This is what Paul is saying on repeat. Uh, faith alone is what justifies us, and it's not the law. And he, he goes off on some little trails, and he says some other things, but he keeps coming back to that theme. Faith is what justifies us before God, and it is not the law. So in this letter today, in this letter that Paul has written to the Galatians that are professing Christ as Lord and Savior, he has, he's got on them for abandoning the true gospel of salvation by faith alone and turning to this Jewish Mosaic law as if the law has some ability to justify us before God. And he reiterates often that we are saved and we are kept saved and we are adopted into God's family and we now have an inheritance awaiting us, not because of the customs that they are following, but by faith in Jesus' work on the cross as means of their justification. And now we come to verse 8 of chapter 4, and Paul's going to go off on a little trail, and he's going to share some of his concerns uh, for the Galatian churches. So um, as, as someone who has spent time and effort in seeing these people be discipled, he doesn't want to see the Galatians turn away from the true gospel to another gospel. So we're going to get right into it in verse number 8. I'm going to read verse 8. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Uh, These Galatian believers were, were practicing pagan religions before they heard the gospel. They were enslaved to this system that had them worshiping things that were not even God. And I love how Paul says, They were worshiping things that by nature are not gods. The very makeup of every other thing outside of the true God of the Bible 
isn't created to be worshipped. People, people have been going about, like sometimes we think it's a new thing that people are worshipping things that aren't God. People have been going against the natural use of things that God has created far, far before our generation. It's no new thing for people to abandon God, the one and true God, the God that is by nature God, and to worship something that they have made up as God. That's no new thing. And, and Paul says, look, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then he moves on. Verse 9 through 11 says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. So Paul presses on these guys here. He reminds them that they know and are known by God. And after having a relationship with the true God, what sense does it make to turn back to this pagan way of living? And he actually compares following the law to their old pagan religions. He tells them that they were enslaved to these pagan religions before turning to the gospel. And if they turn back to the law, they're going to be enslaved once again under a pagan religion, even though it seems very close. And I just, I noticed two things about just these first few verses that I wanted, I wanted to point out. Um, look First, look at who Paul is talking to. He says in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, and then he goes on in verse 9 and says, but now that you have come to know God. He is talking to people that are professing Christ. That's who he is calling out for looking for another means to be justified. People that have known God. He's not writing this letter to people that aren't claiming Christ. Paul's anger that he feels it is not directed to those that don't know God and his gospel. It's directed to people that know what it's like to enter into a relationship with the living God and have shifted their focus onto other, th- other things and off of Christ. Today, I feel like we spend a lot of our times, Christians spend a lot of their times being mad at people that are following the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world and that have never believed in the saving power of the cross. Why? Like, what, what do you expect from someone who does not know God? We get, we get mad at companies for their stances on certain issues. What do you expect? I mean, yes, go ahead and spend your money elsewhere. I think that's necessary sometimes. But to let it affect our joy as blood-bought believers is, is a separate thing. To become a complaining, complacent Christian that seems to be more skilled at, com- that, at griping and complaining than we are in being grateful is not Christ-like for us. The world follows a different God. They follow different principles. And if God had not removed the scales from my eyes and from your eyes, you would be following those gods too. Paul's anger is directed toward people that know, that have been into a relationship with the true God. And you might say, well, not me. I, I, even before I knew Jesus, I knew what was right and wrong. I'm not like these people today that just don't know anything. And that brings me to my second observation about these verses. 
It doesn't matter what you are believing outside of Christ. It doesn't matter. If it isn't the true gospel, it is heresy. It will lead you far from Jesus and right to hell, no matter how close it is. So the Jews are following the law. The law, it is founded in Scripture. They are upright and just outstandingly moral people. The law was based in Scriptures. The Gentiles had superstitions. They, 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 they made up false gods. They had weird ceremonies. Both of those things are condemned here. There, there is no second place. Paul compares one of these things, the super moral, to the other thing, the pagan heresy, just ceremonial weird stuff. They're both equally wrong. They missed the true gospel. So you can claim that you're following God and you can dress it up with a white shirt and a tie and you can pass out a bunch of literature, but if it's not consistent with the gospel, it's weak and worthless. And it's equivalent to someone that's burning incense and doing chants. It's the same thing. You can observe days and times. You can have a certain Sabbath that you have set a time, but if your heart is not aligned with the true gospel, it's a worthless, weak, worldly principle. And that's what Paul is saying. You're returning to that. It doesn't matter if you go to the law or go to your old pagan religion. You're returning to weak and worthless principles of this world. And if you're here and you're thinking, man, I've been, uh, I've been coming to church and I've been doing this life pretty well. I've been coming to church a long time. I respect my country. I do my best to follow the Ten Commandments. I work really hard. And you think that somehow that that has made you more valuable than someone else that's not doing those things. If somehow that has bolstered your justification before God, then you are in the same boat as these Galatians. You, you are relying on something other than your faith to justify you before God. And Paul is pleading with these Galatians that are turning away from the gospel to anything else that is weak and worthless. He's pleading with them to get back, to, to, to get to know the God that they once claimed to know. Why be enslaved to anything when Jesus has set you free from that, bond, from that bondage? And he says in verse 11 that he fears that all of the teaching and all of the time spent with them may turn out to be nothing because they are so caught up in following the law. They want to pursue after the law. He goes on in verses 12 through 14. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So we know from Paul's other writings that he has some sort of uh, physical ailment that plagues him. He has asked God to remove this from him, he, he, but something keeps plaguing him. And some speculate that whatever this is that has uh, ailed Paul throughout his time has affected his eyesight, or it is his eyesight that is ailing him. Um, and we're not exactly sure what has happened previously, but we know that Paul has been forced to stay with the Galatians at some point, and Paul took advantage of that time 
And though battling through a physical ailment, he took the time to share the gospel with the Galatians. And he says that the Galatians did not mistreat him or see him as a burden because of this ailment, but in fact, they treated him as if he were Jesus himself. So the second part of verse 15 actually says, For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This is why some people think that Paul's ailment is related to his eyesight or has caused damage to his eyes. But they treated him so well and were so compassionate that they, that Paul was convinced that they would have plucked out their own eyeballs and given it to him. They were so eager to help that they would have ripped their eyeballs out and given them to Paul. Now, that gives me the willies, and it's kind of, you know, that gives you kind of the willies, but at the same time, there's something beautiful there. Paul is afflicted by some sort of physical ailment, and he still uses the time to share the gospel. That's, that's pretty beautiful. And, and the people that receive the gospel, they care for Paul as, as they would have cared for Jesus. That's a really good picture of the church. That should be a really good picture of the church. That's why Paul says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He's encouraging them to imitate him as he is imitating the very way that they have treated him. So he's saying, get back to that. Forget these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world and get back to that. Because something has happened to the Galatians. Look what he says in verse 15, at the beginning of verse 15 there. He says, what then has become of your blessedness? What, what happened? Apparently, following really hard after the law has robbed them of their freedom to actually serve one another. And that's the problem. That's, that's a huge problem with legalistic rule-following religion. You're obsessed with getting the rules right, so much so that there's nothing left to actually give an actual service for one another. There's no joy in that. They have left the joy and freedom in serving one another by faith, and now they are clinging to the law as if that is their ultimate means of justification and satisfaction. And that's concerning to Paul. That's concerning as a professing believer. They are returning to these elementary principles instead of the true gospel. And now that brings us to verses 16 through 20. It says this, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you and present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul says that I'm the one that's telling you the truth here. Uh, these guys, the Jewish Christians that are telling you that you need to abide by the law and add that on to your faith, these guys are just flattering you so that you will then flatter them. They actually, they actually want to form a little club, some sort of little uh, club where uh, people that be believe that the law is essential are in. They're in. And the people that believe that faith alone is, is what is saving them, they're out. And they want to 
form this little club, and they want to shut everybody out that doesn't believe like them, everybody that's claiming that, that faith alone is, just, is what justifies them, and create this little clique for them to just feel really good about and flatter each other and tell each other that they're doing really well following the law. Now, let's say you're here this morning and you haven't really settled on a church yet, and that's, that's okay. Maybe, or maybe you're here visiting, or maybe you're here like, I don't really know if this is the right place. The more this guy talks, the less I'm thinking this is the place, and that's okay. Or maybe you're here and you're really settled on this church, and you're like, yep, I put up with this every week. This is just what we do. But I'm here and I'm committed but I like to listen to other preachers that actually know what they're saying, and I like to read books, and I like to deepen my faith outside of here. That's fantastic. I would encourage that. Please do that. But I want to I give some super practical tips on finding a good preacher or a good church or maybe even a brother or sister. Maybe you need some counsel or you need some advice, and you need someone to lean into. This is the tip that I would give you. If someone makes much of themselves and their accomplishments, and does not make much of what God has done, I would not trust their preaching, I would not trust their writing, I would not trust their advice, I would not trust their counsel. The Christian world is full of people that use their stage to showcase themselves. They use Christianese language because they know exactly what their audience wants to hear, and they leave enough of it in there to make it sound like they're tipping their hat to God, but it's the theme of what they're saying is man. And so their books and their writings and their talks are about mankind and how good they can be and how um, good they are. And it's disguised as Christian, but its theme is man. If the theme of a ministry is man, it has returned or it has never left the elementary principles of this world because that's the theme of this world. Uh, me, you, we're, we're like the big deal. We possess the power. That's what, that, that's what the world is telling us. So if that's what a preacher or a counselor is telling you, I would, would not advise to go there. And Paul says, watching this, watching you return to this, is as painful as childbirth to watch. Now, I don't know if Paul's allowed to say that, but he said it. He didn't ever give birth. I know that's we're not even allowed to compare anything to childbirth, but Paul just did. He says it's painful to watch. That is no way to form Christ in you. And in fact, he goes on and he gets real dad about this. And he says, I wish I were there because I would change my tone with you. Maybe his tone would be a little bit more elevated. He would be a little bit more angry. He's perplexed at what these guys have done. He doesn't get it. He sees these people that have been transformed by the living God of the Bible. They have sacrificially served him out of love. They have tasted the freedom that Christ has offered. And they seem to be going back to what a pagan religion has to offer, to what the law has to offer, to what this world has to offer. And that's what the world has to offer is a God that by nature is no God at all. A religion where at very best, at the very best, we're patting each other on the back and, and saying, good job, you, were, you really did a good job. Where is God in any of that? Where is the one that has awakened their dead souls and gave them new life? He's pleading with them not to turn back 
to another God. And this is short and sweet. I like to keep the sermons 20, 25 minutes, so hang with me. We don't have much more. I would plead with you the same thing this morning. Don't count on your morality. And I, that's, it's so thick in our culture, in the U.S., that we are somehow, because we're Americans and we're KJV and we're waving the flag, that somehow we have God. You have claimed to know God, the God. We need to be captivated by that, not returning to some rule-following religion. Captivated. We want to worship ourselves so badly that sometimes we miss the true worship of the true and living God. We are so easily impressed with ourselves that we don't take time to pause and be impressed by the God that created us. And if you can get inside your own mind for a second and think about your thoughts, think about your thoughts, you would realize how easily impressed you are with yourself. It's scary and it's really dumb. The things that I have impressed myself over are embarrassing for me to say them out loud. If I back up a car really well, especially if it's a truck that has a trailer on it, I'm just like, you know what? I, I think God just gifts some people better than others. He gives them more gifts because I'm backing this up with some authority. If I, if I grill a steak just beautifully, I don't, if I burn 24 in a row and then the 25th one, I grill it beautifully, I'm pretty impressed. Inside, I am pretty impressed with myself. One time, I folded a button-up shirt to perfection, and I was impressed. You shouldn't even fold a button-up shirt. Just hang it up. You don't even need to fold it. But I was impressed with myself. I, uh, this is a story I've told before, and it's just really stupid. And if you knew my friend, I'm going to rip on him. He's not here. Um, his name's Kenny, and Kenny likes to just tell you kind of a, some of his accomplishments. And one time at football practice, he had an empty water, a half-empty water bottle, and he ran back to the locker room, and on the run, he threw a water bottle, trash, over a fence, and you know those trash cans that stand up, and then they have like the dome on top that have the flap in it. On the run from like here to, I don't know, the last row back there, he throws this thing, and it goes perfectly in, hits the flap, and goes into the trash. To this day, he is impressed with that throw. He tells us about it. He impressed himself by throwing away trash. That's how easily we want to impress ourselves. And we want to tell everybody about the situation that we had. And, and, and sometimes, sometimes we're impressed with things that we would do in a situation. Like I've talked to people all the time, especially men. And they hike up their pants and they're like, let me tell you what. If I was in that situation, I would have put a stop to that. I wouldn't have been, nobody would have talked to me like that. As if, as if we're supposed to be impressed with what they would have done if hypothetically they were in a situation. We are very impressed with ourselves. We need to be captivated by the wonder of God. That's what will keep us from returning to the elementary principles of this world. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves. You are not that good, and you are not that bad to outshine the, the God of the Bible. Now, I'm a nostalgic kind of person. I like to think back to my childhood, 
And I like to look back with great wonder and, and all of the days that have gone by. And sometimes I'll break out those letters that I was talking about, and I'll read through them, those letters that, that my wife had sent me and I had sent my wife. And I'll just kind of remember, and I'll use my imagination a little bit to think back about how, what must have been going on in those times. In that same way, we need to pour over these writings and these letters in this book. We need to look back at what God has done and stir up awe and wonder. We need to read and think about these stories and what kind of God we must have that can orchestrate all of this. We should be fascinated that we are going to get to meet the one that is behind all of this one day. We will meet him. And, and I just want to, for a second here, I would like to list, list off some of the impressive things that God has done. God the Father and God the Son in human flesh. This is some of the things that he has done. So the next time we do like 14 push-ups, we can kind of think of this instead. God created out of nothing, ex nihilo, nothing. He took absolutely nothing and he created. He rained fire from the sky. He wrestled with a human all night. That blows my mind because at any time he could have just pinned him down, but he wrestled with a human and put his hip out of joint. Uh, he has prescribed limits to where the sea will go. He tells the sea, you are not allowed to go any farther than this. He entered into the springs of the sea and walked in the deep of the sea. He, that means he walked on the ocean's floor. You can't hold your breath for more than 30 seconds. He walked on the ocean floor. And right now some people are like, I can hold my breath more than 30 seconds. And you're trying to hold your breath. If you're not trained for it, just pay attention up here. Uh, God waters lands that no man will ever go to. Literally spends time and care on places that no man goes. And it's, it's no extra work. It's not anything extra for him. He tells lightning where to strike. He provides food for all the animals. This, this is crazy. He knows uh, when all animals give birth. That means that he knows every living thing's birthday. I really filled out a, a form for my son's physical, and I struggled with my son's birthday. He knows every single living thing's birthday, a gnat, everything. Uh, he commands the morning. I'll be honest, I don't even really know what that means, but it sounds awesome. He commands the morning, and it's always morning somewhere. Like, it's morning, so he's constantly commanding the morning, and I would assume he probably commands the afternoon and the evening, too. That's amazing. He, uh, he stores up hail and snow. He stores it up, okay? I mean, come on. Have you seen what people are putting in their storage units? I, I run a thrift store. I know what people are putting in their storage units. It's not that impressive. It's not as impressive or as useful as snow and hail. He stacks up snow and hail. Um, God the Son told a grown man that had never walked to get up and walk, and he did. Uh, he, he walked on top of water. Um, a guy pulled out a sword and cut off a guy's ear, and Jesus picked his ear up off the ground and put it back onto him. If you can't get some emotional stir out of that, I mean, he put a guy's ear back on. 
Uh, and he, honestly, he drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank the cup of God's wrath and was beaten on a cross so that you and I would not have to drink from the cup of God's wrath. He forgives sins. As amazing as all that stuff is, he forgives sins. You know the weight of that. You know how much sin entangles us. You know what it's like to walk around with guilt and with pressure. God, God has forgiven that. What do, you do with, what do you do with that stuff? What do you do with sin? Jesus literally forgives it. He paid for it. And you may be here this morning and you're feeling the slide. You're, you're feeling the temptation to return to the elementary principles of this world. And I want to encourage you to be captivated by the wonder of God. That's what will keep us from congratulating ourselves and returning to the weak and worthless principles of this world. Brothers and sisters, you know him and have been known by him. Don't turn back to the weak and worthless offerings of this world. Remember back when you didn't know God. Think of the credit that he deserves in your life. He's the only one worthy of a lifetime and an eternity of worship. Read about him. Pray about him. Ask him to pull you in close and to change you. To change you more into, him, into his image. We are talking about the God. The, the very one that his very nature and makeup is God. Return back to him. Fix your eyes on him. And he will justify you by faith. He's the only one that has the power to do that. And I would just encourage you, stay close to him. Return to him. Come back to him. He's there waiting. He is the only true and living God. Let's pray. God, we are, uh, we are thankful that you do justify by faith. Because whatever else we could offer up is not enough. It's not, it's not enough. We could spend our life in service, and it's not enough. And I pray that if there's someone here that's relying on morality or what they think is right, that they would, would come close to the God of the Bible, that you would, um, you would supernaturally give them a new heart, new affections and new desires, and you would save them. And I pray for the brothers and sisters that are here, that you would give us just a, a taste of what it will be like to be with you. Give us wonder and imagination and awe as we read through your word. And, and may we never outgrow that. Help us to be captivated by who you are, by your glory, more and more each day. I just praise you, honor you, thank you so much for being our God, the only God worthy of praise and worship. We give you the praise for it this morning. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.